First John chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. When my kids were young, I uh, remember specifically a time where I was in my kitchen with, I think, my oldest daughter, Chris, and she was walking, or it was actually something very basic and simple. And as she was walking, I just remember saying to her, be careful, be careful. And for the first time, it just hit me that I had this sense of fear that came out of nothing. In other words, she wasn't doing anything that was dangerous. It was... Maybe there was something on the floor. I don't know. It was something very basic. And suddenly it really dawned on me that within me, internally, there was fear that had been there for a long time. You know, we read from Psalm 23. And when I was young, I would walk home from my friend's home. And there, it was pretty dark, sort of the the night was coming on and there was these large trees, and I would always imagine that there was someone right behind it. And I would start reciting to myself Psalm 23, even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I would fear no evil. Because there was a lot of fear in me. When my parents took me to the World Trade Center, went to the top, I was about four or five years old, and I couldn't stand near the window because... It just seems so frightful. Needless to say, there was a lot of fear in me and multiple areas. I could go on and on about this. But what I came to realize is that that was deep down in my soul. And without even recognizing it, when I had my own child, it became so easy to convey that without even recognizing that it was a part of who I was. And so that fear led to behavioral patterns, um, my decision-making was impacted by that. Realizing that is so much a part of who we are, why we do what we do, is a critical part of the beginning process of being freed from fear forever. In this passage, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 14-18, through 18, John really lays out for us how we can be freed from fear. That it is possible to throw out or cast away fear forever and ever. 
And I'm going to talk about two ways in which John lays out for us how we can cast out fear. The first from, comes from verse 17, that we have a confident love which casts out fear. And the second is in verse 18, we have a perfect love that casts out fear. So first, let's look at verse 17, this confident love that casts out fear. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are, uh, are we in this world. It is possible that at the last day when we stand before the Lord in judgment to actually have confidence to not be afraid on that last day if you can, I, I don't think any of us can even come close to imagining that day where all the hosts of heaven and all the people of all time, of all history, are gathered preparing for that day of judgment. And how can I stand before that great day, that great moment, through Christ, who is the eternal judge, stand with confidence? John says that we can stand with confidence because we know we have been loved with an atoning, never-failing, assured love that has been proven and promised and worked by the cross of Christ. We see this by that first phrase in verse 17, by this. So that phrase shows us that something has happened to make this what, is, what he's about to say possible. And we've covered a lot about what that something is. And let's look again at verses 14 through 16. We read it and we're going to read it again. We studied it last week. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This love is only possible because Jesus loves us first. It's a love relationship. By nature, God is love, and he's proven it, and he shows it positively. He does it by, as we learned last week, by giving and sending his son. And because God loved us so deeply, he wants love in return. That is to say, it's a love relationship. It's not an unrequited love. God isn't there in some sort of drama where he loves us, but we don't love him back. That's not what this love is like. It's a mutual love. And God wants us to love him in return. But you might be thinking, I actually have a hard time loving God like that. I'm selfish towards him. Maybe you feel as though you have failed him miserably time and time again, despite his love for you. Maybe you haven't desired to spend that time with him as much as you would love somebody else a person, so too God is a person. And perhaps you're wondering, does God still love me? Because you don't seem to love him back. God, who is love, who sent his son as savior, he did so despite our lack of love for him. He does the work. And we see this through these words. If we look at it again in verse 17, by this love is being perfected with us. I mean, that's really the right way to translate that. It's not that love perfected with us. It's God's love is being perfected with us. 
And that's a truth. It is passive and it is present and it is ongoing until perfection. So the idea of it is that God is doing, we are the receivers, the benefit, passive receivers. We're not doing anything to gain his love. God is perfecting and we're being perfected over time. And eventually the very word perfect shows us what the end goal and result is that there is going to be a time where we will be perfected in his love. It's going to happen until it's completed and nothing is going to stop that. Thankfully, not even you and I can stop God's love being perfected in us. He's shaping our hearts. If you are in Christ, as we saw, if you've confessed Jesus as Lord, if the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you, then over time, he is perfecting this love in you for him. And how do we see this happening? What is the practical way we see this? What does it look like? Actually, John says it for us. By this, love is being perfected with us. Now, that's a very, very important prepositional phrase. You might think it's a very small phrase, but it's so important because here's what he could have said. By this, love is being perfected in me. He could have said that. But John had a very specific purpose for using the phrase with us because with us assumes community. It actually says that love on your own cannot be perfected. In other words, if you are truly in isolation, you're by yourself, it's not that you couldn't love God, but you would, it would be very hard to demonstrate it. You'd be by yourself. If you were truly in solitary confinement all by yourself for the rest of your life, the only person you could ultimately love is yourself. It, you would have a hard time demonstrating love as an actual act because we know one thing is that love is demonstrated. We saw it in John 3.16, God so loved the world. God also demonstrates love within himself, Father, Son, Spirit. There is love in community, in the triune Godhead. So that love that is expressed in community is also expressed amongst one another. In other words, we need each other to grow in love. You don't grow in love by yourself. You grow in love together with us. And the thing about that love is that love on its own is absolutely self-defeating. It's impossible. It's an oxymoron. You can't love yourself. You can, but it has to be an expression of what God has done for you. And that has an outward fruitfulness towards other people. The more you're concerned about your own protection and your own kingdom, what your needs are, the less you understand love. Love has to have another. It has to also go beyond people who are easy to love in your life. Because when there's little or no cost in loving, it's hard to understand the love of God. Because God's love is all about having a cost. It had a great cost. So you could say that the love that makes us confident in the end, the love that makes us assured, the reason why we can have assurance at the end of the day when we see Christ is that we have loved people at cost. Financial cost, cost to our own ego, cost to our own pride. What every time we say, I'm sorry, and we genuinely mean it, even if the person haven't re reciprocated that type of desire for reconciliation or sorrow, that's a cost, and it's very costly. You see, Jesus loves sinners 
while we were sinning against him. That's how God demonstrates love according to Romans 5.8. That's an unexpected love. You're not supposed to love people who hurt you. But when you do love people who, whom you're not supposed to love, that brings confidence at the end of our days and it shows the world an astounding love. Many of you have heard of Dylan Roof. He was the shooter in the uh, church at the church in Charleston, South Carolina, at Emmanuel AME Church. He was a white supremacist. These men and women, most of them older folks, they were having a Bible study in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 13. And he just went in and shot them simply for being black, for being African-American. He was tried and convicted. One woman, Nadine Collier, was the mother of a slain woman, Ethel Lance. As Dylan Roof looked on emotionless as the judge was pronouncing his bail and all the different uh, circumstances, Collier declared, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but if God forgives you, I forgive you. Liberal commentator and self-proclaimed atheist Charles Cook, after hearing those words, wrote, I am a non-Christian, and I must say, this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. That's a love that will stand the test of time, can be confident at the end of the days, and influences the world. Jesus says in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so also you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the love that gives you confidence on the last day. You will know that you will be with Jesus forever when you love this way. So that confident love, it drives away fear. You don't have to quake in your boots when you see Jesus before the judgment throne. You will go with confidence. Second is perfect love casts out fear. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We've already gone into great detail as to what this perfect love looks like. Again, when we studied the previous verses in 13 through 14 and 15. And it's now a perfect love that casts out fear, meaning everything has been done for you. Everything has been given to you by God, who is love, who by nature, by definition, his character is love. And that love assures you that you are secure forever. And so what does that look like for us? I want to go back to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, because Paul describes what happens to us. When we have a perfect love that drives out fear, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul, in the first part of chapter 5, verse 1, essentially describes everything that John has described in verses 13 through 15. That we have been justified by faith. The cross of Christ 
what Jesus has shown us at that cross, when we believe, when we are justified, when we are made righteous, when we are declared righteous, that actually is the freedom by which we stand. Through the cross, the perfect expression of God's love, what is the end result of that access, of that love? Paul says, when we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Peace and joy. Peace with God. We rejoice in hope. Meaning Christians who actually believe the gospel are freed from fear forever. We have peace. We have joy. That's the opposite of fear. How can fear be a product of the Christian character when there is peace and joy as a result of what God has done through Christ on that cross. If fear is driving us, if it's, as I shared earlier, even in my own soul, deep within your heart, if it's motivating you, if it's causing you to respond with anxiety, sleeplessness, if you're afraid, your intrepidation, you're always worried about what is to come, worried for the future, then either you have forgotten what Jesus has done for you and you need to go back to that or perhaps you don't actually believe what Jesus has done for you. It's got to be one of the two. You know, this virus has far too many of us reacting in fear. We have to really be honest with ourselves. Is my heart motivated by fear in my actions, in my plans during this time in particular, does it make me inward focused? Am I only focused about how am I going to survive? What am I going to do? Perhaps when Susie was sharing about hands at work and she said, go to the computer, you're, in your mind, your first instinct is, I don't have that money. I don't have $25 a month. Does it make us unkind and not thoughtful, this virus? Does it make us less generous I was on the one hand surprised and on the other not when George had shared that at 9-11, when that happened, hands at work, they had gone through, and I think most charitable organizations, especially those who are serving the poorest of the poor, they had gone through a, really a plummeting of generosity. People had stopped giving during that time because of fear. I'm wondering if that's happening now. Are we more concerned about people staying six feet away then we are our first instinct asking, hey, how have you been? Are you okay? In other words, if, if you're seeing someone for the first time, are you more concerned, oh my word, they might, get, they might give me the virus? Or are we thinking, how have you been? Have you been isolated? How's, how has it been? It, it must have been hard. When we come down with a cold, are we worrying we're going to die? We're going to go to the hospital, the ICU? Is, is, that our, is that how we're being driven to think? Imagine if Jesus came and said, I'm so worried about people infecting me. You know, he went to the leper. Leprosy was thought to be a very contagious disease. When everyone else was running away from the leper, Jesus went and touched him. He wasn't socially distancing. I'm not here advocating that we just forego all laws and not even think about the idea of the virus per se. But I'm here to question how does a Christian respond when we have that type of confidence that, again, George shared a, 
when, when he first came, our lives are but a dot on the wall and our eternity is far more than the wall. It's the whole earth and we're living on the dot. Do we really believe that or do we just say that? Is that just fantasy land or is it real for us? This virus is activating much more than the symptoms of our physical bodies. It is activating the spiritual symptoms of our idolatry. It's showing what do we really worship? We really worship ourselves, our health, our money, our job, our career. You see, fear, according to John in verse 18, has to do with punishment. Do you see that in verse 18? Fear has to do with punishment. You know that word punishment? It's used only one other time in the Bible, in the Greek. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Listen to what, how Jesus uses that same word. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Fear at the core is always the fear of death, which is the fear of loss of control. Loss of security, loss of freedom, loss of you. But what if that fear is gone forever? That's what John says happens when you trust in Christ and all that he has done. Fear, that type of fear has to do with eternal punishment. When you know that that is gone, then you can actually live in freedom of fear. It is possible. But we have to believe that Christ, what he accomplished at that cross, frees you forever, for an eternity. Now, there is a place for fear, a right fear. Having a right fear actually does give you security, freedom, joy, and it replaces what this fear speaks of, the servile fear that enslaves you. What is this right fear? The Bible describes it, especially in Proverbs and all throughout, as the fear of the Lord. Proverbs describes that as the beginning of wisdom. When we have the fear of the Lord, we act, live, think wisely. When we do not have that fear, we live, according to the Proverbs, foolishly. We become a fool. See, there's only two ways to live. You're either wise or a fool, and wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Foolishness starts with the fear of the world. And there are two essential types of fear. One is this idea of terror and dread. Second is reverence and awe. Those are the two major categories of fear. When it comes to God, you might think it's all about reverence and awe, but we're supposed to have terror and dread too. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a good thing that we have terror and dread of God. Now, why is that the case? We need both, actually. That is to say that you cannot have a reverent awe of God without a terror and dread of God. See, this type of fear destroys the fear of punishment and death. Well, let me explain. First, we'll go to a response of that type of terror and dread fear. That happened to Adam right after he sinned. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10 describes it this way. When Adam sinned, he said this to God, I heard you walking in the garden and I was afraid. I was in terror. I was naked, so I hid. He obviously hid because he was in terror. He was in dread. That terror struck his soul. And 
the question that we might have is, does God really want me to be in terror of him, to be in dread of him? May I say that without that terror and dread of a holy God, we would never be in awe of him. We would not revere him. We would not respect him. I had a biology teacher in high school, my freshman year. In high school, I went to an all-boys Catholic school. He was an alumni of the school, and he was an all-star linebacker, state. He, he was excellent at his position. So you would think someone like him, an all-star linebacker, having him as a teacher, we would all be in terror and dread. The problem with him, though, is that he wanted to be everyone's friend. He wanted to be relatable. And anyone who knows, if you've ever had a teacher who wants to be cool, they end up being not cool. If they want to be relatable and everyone's friend, they end up being no one's friend. And so all of us freshman boys, and we were all boys, it's like 25 boys, freshman boys in a class, and he, was, he would just hand out detentions left and right. He could not control the classroom. One day, we were doing frog dissections. He stepped out of the lab for a few moments, and we all started throwing frog parts at each other. We started, everyone started hanging frog parts everywhere. As soon as he walked in, there were frogs everywhere, parts. We, were, we had parts all over our bodies. It was uh, terrible. You know, that actually ended up being the last year he ever taught again. It's sad. It says a lot about the sinfulness of boys. Just read Lord of the Flies and you'll see what that can be like. But here's the problem with that man, that teacher. He tried to be everyone's friend, relatable, and no one feared him. Even though he was a big man, he never used it. He, no one feared him. There was no respect, no reverence, no awe. And without that respect, we couldn't learn. We couldn't grow. We couldn't come to enjoy learning. We never actually came to learn anything. Do you really want a God whom you have no terror over? That God could not help you in times of trouble. If God is just like you, weak, struggles, someone you can sort of put your arm around, say, hey, dude, what's up? How are you doing? If that's how you want God to be, then God can't help you. Trust me, when you are in trouble, you want a big, powerful, strong God who, whom you have terror over, whom you tremble over. Maybe we're not afraid of the day of judgment because we just don't think it's going to be all that bad. We have a hard time imagining that day. Ignorance is bliss. Or in this case, ignorance is non-existence. I mean, that's sort of the way little children think. If you tell a child not to cross the street because there are cars, they just don't understand that. They don't understand that actually trying to walk across that street when there are cars, if they get hit by a car, they don't understand it until it actually happens or still until you as a parent say, if you do that, you will be in trouble by me. Because they don't understand the idea of a car hitting them. It's too difficult. We knew somebody who had a, a young child. They were cooking something. They left a pot of hot pot of oil on, on the stove. The handle was out, and that child was playing. Mother had warned them, but that doesn't connect. A child playing with a, with, a, you know, with a handle of a pot out, 
And so by accident, that child hit the pot. The oil spilled all over the hot oil, third degree burns, and had to have multiple surgeries throughout her life. Now, at that moment, when that child is playing, they just don't get it. It's ignorance. They don't understand how dangerous it is. My friends, I really believe we're like that child. If you do not understand how dangerous that judgment day is, eternally, infinitely more so than a a car coming across the street, a pot of hot oil, if you do not have Christ and you meet him on that day of judgment, you will be more terrified than any virus could ever bring or any murderer or any horror story. You do not want to face Christ on that day without the blood of Christ covering you. We must be afraid of that day if we do not have Jesus Christ in our lives. It will be foolish to stand there also if you think that your morality, your philanthropic deeds, your kindness to others, somehow that's good enough. If you think, well, I went on a missions trip, gave to hands at work, Maybe I put your feet to stand confidently before the judgment day. You will be sorely mistaken. I was in the Boy Scouts. If you know anything about the Boy Scouts, I made it to the rank of star. And it's not eagle, but it's getting there. It's on the way. It's on the journey. But I had a bunch of merit badges and skill awards. And But standing before Jesus and going with my philanthropic deeds and all my morality and all the good things, even being a pastor, even a missionary, whatever it might be, it's sort of like standing there before, let's say I'm, I get drafted into the army, I'm a private, and I happen to meet the general of the army who is the, the top-ranking officer of the army. And this four-star, five-star general is standing there, and on him he has all these ribbons of all, and he has every single battle ribbon, all the Congressional Medal of Honor and Silver Star and Bronze Star, and all these things, and he's just there loaded. And I, I come and say, sir, these are my merit badges and my skill awards when I was a Boy Scout. And actually, this allows me to be in your presence and to be just right there with you because I deserve to be. Because look at all that I've done. I would either be thrown in the brig or the mental institution. <laughs> I mean, that's what it would be like for us to think that we can stand before the God of the universe, Christ, who is Lord of all, and to think somehow that my good deeds... My being a pastor or the fact that on this day we made this worship possible. Somehow I'm going to take that and say, Lord, this is, look what I did. And Jesus said, depart from me. I will never knew you. If that's where we're standing before him, we're in big trouble. John's point is this in verse 18. When whoever fears has not been perfected in love, when we fear, we have forgotten that Jesus' perfect love shown for us at the cross, has destroyed death and the power of fear forever. That's what allows us to stand before the judgment throne without fear. My friends, I'm not here saying that we don't, that Christians never fear. We do. Christians and non-Christians have fear, but Christians are never enslaved by fear. We have fear, We are not slaves of fear. 
we cry out to our God. At the end of it all, we cry out to our Father. Paul makes this so clear for us in Romans 8.15. Look at what Paul says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And he's speaking to the church, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, Paul's not saying Christians never fear. We're just not enslaved by it. It doesn't control us and cause us to act only in the way fear drives. Christians can worry. Christians can falter and do. Christians can be sorrowful. Christians can come, become depressed. Christians can have a melancholy spirit. And just as our physical bodies and faces are different, unique, so too our psyches. There are some who are more extroverted, some who are more introverted, some who are melancholy of spirit, are more prone to depression, some who are less. But the difference is from an enslavement of that type of expression to someone who's freed is that at the end of the day, when you present God's word, and I can't say this more strongly than ever before, the Christian, you can always say, here's God's word. And they won't turn back away from it. See, if you're enslaved by fear, you'll say, no, I don't want to hear that at all. But a Christian, they might have a hard time listening. They might have their head down. But when they hear God's word, the light just, even if it pierces through a little bit. And then you present God's word again. You're not giving up on them. You show them God's word. You read scripture. You memorize it. You're sharing it with that person. You say, look at what the Bible says. And that person doesn't say, no, I'm not going to listen to it. That's just a bunch of garbage. Instead, they might not first receive it, but the Holy Spirit is prompting them, the conscience. And it's bringing them back to God's word. That's why it is so important. George spoke a lot about rhythms. The rhythm of God's word regularly, every day, you have to be in it. In different patterns, in different ways, whether it's through just spending time in the morning, scripture memory. That's why we're doing these evening devotions to focus ourselves on God's word. You read books about it. You listen to sermons, uh, Bible studies, Sometimes it's just a conversation with a friend, an email. When you're emailing someone, show them God's word. Don't just email them and say, hi, how are you doing? I hope you're all as well praying for you. But look at God's word and, and say, Lord, show me a word for this person because they need to hear it. The more we are piercing people with the light, and there's a reason why it's called a sword, the sword of God, the word of God is a sword because Satan is doing all he can and you know, if you ever ever watched uh, Lord of the Rings, and there's that one scene, that big spider, and Frodo is running away, and he's caught in the big spider webs. I sort of think of those spider webs as all the different schemes of Satan, just trying to grab hold of you, and literally caught. And this big devil is coming. What is that sword that pierces all those webs and sets you free? God's word. It's the only thing that sets you free from the, the power of the devil which compared to God's word is weak. Notice that's what Jesus defeated Satan with in the desert, God's word. We have to use it over and over again. We have to believe it. We have to say it. We have to sing it. We have to preach it. And when we do, 
regardless of where our psyche is on the spectrum of whether we're more melancholy of spirit and therefore more prone to areas of depression, or maybe we're more joyous, and, or maybe we're just more bright, and it just happens to be our inclination. But I tell you, it doesn't matter where you are. We still all need God's word. It frees us. It penetrates our soul. And you know what it does? It helps us to overcome. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure, God's word, the gospel in jars of clay, and that's us, our bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul is showing us we can be persecuted, afflicted, perplexed, uh, struck down. All of us have gone through those seasons, whether it's through active persecution, whether it's the, the darkness of our own soul. But God's word penetrates and it never allows us to sink to the bottom. We are, as Paul says, by God's surpassing power, we've overcome. What is that surpassing power? Christ on that cross, the deliverance of our souls eternally forever. And because of that, we can cry out. You know what keeps us from being enslaved? We cry out to the Father. He is our Father. We are sons and daughters. We are freed. We can cry out to him. And look at what Paul says in the rest of Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself, after we cry out, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. The Holy Spirit then opens our spirit and says that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. When you feel the weight and the burden, when your, think, when your first instinct is, stay six feet back, where's my mask? I need you know, what is disinfectant on my hands. Someone's going to infect me. I'm going to get sick. Do I have a job? I mean, all these fears right now that are enclosing in us, we need to cry out, Father, I'm struggling right now. I'm not thinking about other people and I'm not thinking about you. Please help me. And Paul says that when we cry out like that, the spirit comes, bears witness to your spirit and shows you you are a child of God. You've been freed. You are an heir. You're fellow heirs with Christ because of all that Jesus has done. And the Holy Spirit says, my child, do not be afraid. I'm your hiding place. I'm your shelter from this storm. You can trust me. And the love through Christ Jesus that, has been, that is being perfected in you, it casts out fear forever and ever. That's good news. Let me close with this. You know, this verse is a very special verse for me. Perfect love casts out fear. A few years ago, I would say about four years ago, I was going to Africa and was going to serve on a team with a group of pastors. We were going to take an airplane. It was a very, I've never ridden in a small airplane. Um, and it was going to go from Zambia to Zimbabwe. And... 
like I said, I went to the World Trade Center, four years old, scared of heights. Have you ever ridden in a small airplane? It was a five-seater or a six-seater? Small Cessna. I mean, you could see everything down below. And so about a few weeks before my trip, I had a nightmare. And in this nightmare, basically everything around my house was destroyed. A tornado had come and destroyed everything. And I, I was uh, in my house, and I could, I could see my wife, and I went to go pull her out. And then I woke up, and I was sweating, and I was just nervous. And the first thought that came to my mind is, I'm going to die on that plane. <laughs> I'm going to die. There was a fear that was gripping me, and I really felt that. Well, anyway, went to Africa. Was in um, First, we were in South Africa. Actually, no, we were in Zambia. And I had shared this dream with George. And I said, George, you know, I just had this dream. And I, I don't know if the Lord's trying to tell me something. I'm not a huge, I have many crazy dreams. And then most of them, 99.99% never come true. So I don't put too much stock in my dreams. But for some reason, this dream felt so real, so spiritual that I thought, I'm definitely going to die on this trip. And it's going to be on that plane. <laughs> and so on top of that, I actually got physically sick on that trip, almost with this case of really, it, people would have thought I had coronavirus then if, I, if there was this thing going on. I was flattened. I was having nightmares, all sorts of prob- digestive problems. Anyway, and I told George, George, I had this dream. Here's what happened. And he said to me this, and I'll never forget it. He said, Sam, you know, the Lord says, perfect love casts out fear. And I have always found that God never, ever does things out of a sense of dread of events or of people. He never utilizes that to change you. And when I sat back and thought about that, I realized that is absolutely true. You know, God doesn't use our fears as if to say, I'm going to use this as a weapon against you to make you feel better about yourself or to be bold. God uses himself. He always shows us himself, his character, his nature. Until we understand that it's that perfect love of what he gives to us, then we don't actually walk out in fear. We walk out with, as Paul says in Romans 5, with peace and joy. That's the fruitfulness of, of the Christian heart. We should be afraid, have a fear, a right, reverent, awful fear of God. And when we do that, we are freed from all the world's fears forever and ever. And I tell you, I didn't die on that plane. Everything was okay. I made it, came back. And what George did say to me was, he came back a day later and he said, Sam, as I was running, I I felt as though the Lord was, and I, he said, I don't usually have these visions, but I felt as though the Lord had a word for me for you. And it was, it's not about your physical body, but the church is going to go through a time of trial. And that actually did happen around that time. And so, you know, but with that, I wasn't afraid because the Lord is my rock, my fortress. He gave his life for me. He gave his life for you. 
you don't have to be afraid. I hope, Wellspring, at this time, we become more generous than ever before, more faith-filled. We are, we, our first response isn't, how can I protect myself? Our first response is, how can I serve you? How can I love you more? How can I show Christ more? When we do that, we show we really are children of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks and praise because you are good. You're faithful and just. I pray for those who perhaps have been trapped by fear. It's the enemy's schemes to control, to keep us locked, and especially distant from you and not really trusting in your word. Lord, I pray that this season there would be more people in your word than ever before. More people who are looking to it, who are desperate and hungry for it. And we would use it in this fight of faith. I pray that we would have a generous spirit because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would have a servant heart. I pray that we would be faith-filled no matter the circumstances that will come our way. So, oh God, I pray that you would cause us to see Jesus, you came even though it was at such a great cost that didn't stop you from coming, that didn't stop you from visiting, from caring, from loving. You touched the leper, even though everyone around you probably shrieked with horror because no one came that close to someone with an infectious disease. But Jesus, thank you that you came to us with our infectious hearts that are so corroded, were so disgusting. And yet, Jesus, you still came. You loved us while we were still sinners. Cause us, O oh Lord, to have a right perspective at this time. We need it so much. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are with us. You haven't left us alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.